Welcome to The Deal with Animals. I'm Marika Bell, and this is a podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and non-human animals. We're talking today about wildlife sanctuaries in Bolivia, run by the nonprofit Comunidad Intiwariasi, with author, artist, and chair of Friends of Intiwariasi, Laura Coleman. We'll be talking about the role of politics, wildlife trafficking, climate change, and habitat destruction that has prompted the need for sanctuaries like Siwi. We will hear stories of the young volunteers who founded the nonprofit, as well as Laura's personal inspiring story of her work with a puma named Waira, which she also writes about in her memoir, The Puma Years. We discuss the benefits of eco-volunteering and weigh the costs of our carbon footprint against the emotional and life-changing experience that these programs offer. Thank you for joining me today as we ask the question, what's the deal with animals? Thank you for joining me today on The Deal with Animals. Would you please introduce yourself and share your pronouns? Uh, hi, um, my name's Laura Coleman. My pronouns are she, her. I am a writer and an artist. I live on the Isle of Egg in Scotland. Um, and I have been working for uh, 15 years almost with a Bolivian NGO in, called Comunidad Intuariasi, which is what we're going to be talking about today, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so tell us all about, uh, we call it Siwi for short? Siwi, yes. Yes. Um, what, what do we need to know about it? Uh, yeah, so Siwi is a, uh, as I said, it's Bolivian, Bolivian NGO, um, and they run three wildlife sanctuaries um, in different parts of the Bolivian jungle, um, and they rescue animals um, that have been sold on the black market, um, largely as pets, um, and they give these animals a second chance at life. Um, so where this uh, can be released. Well, they release where possible, um, but most of the time the reality is that most of the animals have uh, suffered too much emotional and physical trauma um, to be released. So the work is mostly um, yeah, keeping these animals uh, comfortable and safe and happy um, in the sanctuaries um, and also educating about the illegal pet trade and deforestation um, and what the impacts of those things are on biodiversity. Now, for most of my listeners, they've probably never been to Bolivia. Um, so tell us a little bit about what goes on in Bolivia in terms of what are the politics behind the the pet trade there? Uh, why are people taking animals out of the wild? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not exclusive to Bolivia um, across the world um, uh, in, yeah, everywhere, South America, Asia, Africa, North America. Um, yeah, everywhere really. Um, the uh, yeah, the pet trade is um, uh, an industry which is worth billions and billions of dollars, um, and it is basically it's tied to um, habitat uh, destruction, um, and animals are taken out of the wild and uh, sold either um, as uh, pets um, because people uh, some people think that having a um an exotic pet is a good thing it can be seen as a status symbol um or just uh, kind of great to have a cute cuddly little uh puma and then people don't realize that as they get older these animals are not meant to be kept in a domestic environment 
and they um yeah they become unhappy and they become aggressive and uh difficult too difficult to handle um because this is not where they are meant to be um and uh, they are also uh sold for their fur um or um their jaguars in particular are sold for their claws and teeth um and yeah it's a it's a it's a trade that happens across the world not just in bolivia yeah correct um is it is it happening in Bolivia specifically because of the range of biodiversity there, do you think, or is it there aren't better ways to, to make the money or is it just such a very profitable way that people can make money? Um, it's profitable. Um, it's tied um, as well to climate change and with kind of more um, instability um, with the weather and with um, economies um, makes it harder for for people to to find jobs, and so that's um, people start to rely more on illegal poaching um, and illegal deforestation um, when they can't do things like farming, um, as if the weather is more unstable. Um, yeah, so uh, I it's definitely not peculiar to Bolivia, but Bolivia has a very very high. Um, uh, incredible biodiversity it's an amazing country it's kind of sort of smack bang in the middle of um south america um and uh, there are the andes and then you've got the jungles you've got the salt flats um and there's a huge range of um animals and species um so it's a really really beautiful place to visit um yeah so it's not a small country uh, it's, it's not, it's, it's one of the smallest in South America. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's not a small country. <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly varied. So you, you were, let's dig a bit deeper into how the illegal trafficking of wildlife is connected to habitat destruction. Well, <laughs> that's a hard question. <laughs> Can well, you- I guess the habitat destruction is happening partly because of, of farming practices. Yeah. Are there other other things besides farming practices that are really creating that habitat destruction? How is global warming, for instance, hitting Bolivia, you know, particular ways? Um, so, for example, in the I, I mean, I can speak to my specific um, experience working in these wildlife sanctuaries for the last 15 years. Um, and uh, when I first went there, I worked predominantly at a sanctuary called Ambuari which is near Santa Cruz um, in Bolivia. And uh, when I first went, the area was completely covered in jungle. Um, And there was one road that runs through the sanctuary. um, And it used to be so quiet that you could uh, sleep on the road at night. And there wasn't a single truck or car. Um, And then over the years, um, like within two, three years, you would... um, just see kind of logging truck after logging truck after logging truck, um, hundreds of them passing every day, each with kind of up to like 10, 15 trees on them. And you could, you literally see the jungle being um, sort of taken down before your eyes. Um, and every year it, there are, the sanctuary is surrounded by farms now. Um, and every year the farmers uh, do uh, slash and burn which is a practice um 
which uh, improves the quality of the soil of the crops every year. But it's also um, illegal because it's um, not uh, often the farmers don't um, contain the fires. So the fires spread into the surrounding jungle. And every year now we have thousands of hectares of jungle burn all around us. Um, and this obviously has a huge impact on the wildlife in the area. Um, and it's an incredibly stressful time of year every year. And that that has got worse, um, as has the uh, the flooding. So we, um, every, ever since that I've been going there, the jungle um, floods during rainy season, which is uh, November to March, April. Um, and in the last two years, so it, normally it floods up to about kind of neck height, waist neck height, and you have to walk through swamp to get out into the jungle. Um, and yeah, in the last year, the last two years, it's been completely dry. Um, so there's been no swamp at all. And this um, is completely heartbreaking um, because it's the rainforest. Obviously, it's it's meant to be raining, um, and it's not. So this obviously is a kind of impact of climate change, um, and that has, as I said, kind of knock on effects on uh, the kind of local economy, on people's ability to uh, find work, to to farm, to grow food, um, and it means that. Um, People are more inclined, perhaps, to go into these re- shrinking territories, shrinking parts of the jungle, um, and uh, take the animals out of it because they know that they can um, make money off them. Right. So, why don't you describe how how seaweed started, hmm. and and who who was involved in that? Yeah. So, seaweed is a Bolivian-run organization. It was started in the nineteen eighties. Um, it was a group of Bolivian volunteers who were working with underprivileged young people in La Paz, which is Bolivia's capital city up in the mountains. And they um, were teaching these young people uh, essential skills, how to kind of look after themselves, how to cook clean, um, garden, um, uh, do the kinds of things that they um, may be able to earn a living from um, if they weren't able to go to school and have a traditional education. Um, and part of this was the volunteers started taking the young people on nature trips into the surrounding environment. And they, um, the children were kind of blown away by the beauty um, of their country um, but also at the environmental destruction that they saw um, and witnessed, and these uh, young people were completely empowered, and they became uh, they became activists, and they went on marches and um, lobbied the government, trying to stop um, uh, stop environmental uh, destruction. And uh, on one of these particular um, trips into the jungle, they went to a little village and they saw a spider monkey who was being kept in a cage um, in the village. And they, the young people and the volunteers were so kind of uh, shocked and saddened by this that they wanted to help the monkey. So they uh, kind of talked to the the people who, who um, were his owners, I say owners with air quotes, and... Um, and they uh, convinced um, 
this the the people to to release him so they let they opened the cage and let the monkey off into the jungle and they thought yeah this is great we've done a good thing and then a few days later they heard that the monkey had just come back um to the village because that's the reality if you try and release animals who've been kept in captivity without giving them the proper, proper training they are uh they are incapable of looking after themselves they can't find food uh, they can't um Kind of interact with other monkeys um and so yeah that's what happened to this monkey it just came back and so that really kind of changed the trajectory of of what these kind of young activists decided that they wanted to do um and at that time there wasn't a single uh refuge for wild animals in bolivia and so uh, they decided they wanted to start one and uh, siwi um which stands for Comunidad Intiwariasi. So Intiwariasi means sun, moon, and stars in three different indigenous languages. Um, and that's really important for Bolivia because Bolivia has one of the highest um, populations of indigenous peoples in South America. Um, and so this name was um, kind of represented the, the kind of the diversity of Bolivia's cultural heritage. Um, and yeah, so Intuariasi was founded uh, officially in 1992, and in 1996 they founded Parque Machia, which was the first wildlife sanctuary um, ever in Bolivia. Um, and that was the idea, really, to kind of um, give these animals who didn't have anywhere to go and who'd been abused and, and mistreated to give them a, a second home, um, to teach them how to look after themselves and to be wild if possible, and if not to let them live as close to the wild as possible. Um, but Siwi, um, it began very much um, with its roots and working with people for social justice. And this is something that is still kind of very much at the heart of Intuariasi. And they've always worked with uh, young people um, and education is very kind of high up on their priorities. So what is your role and goals with Intuariasi? Um my well <laughs> i started off as a volunteer in 2007 um and i intended to go i was traveling in south america and i intended i'd never studied biology or animal behavior or anything like that um and yeah i was traveling in bolivia and uh, i heard about this wildlife sanctuary and i thought i'd go for a few weeks um and that would be it it and completely changed my life. I ended up staying um, that time for, uh, well, I stayed in the sanctuary for five months. Yeah, I missed my flight home. I stayed in South America for, for over two years um, that time. And then since then, I've pretty much been going back and forth um, between the UK and Bolivia. Um, and I go, if I can, every year for as long as I can. Um, and it, it was, I was just so kind of, um, I found a home there with this community of of people um, and this community of animals. I was working with a particular, uh, particularly traumatized uh, female puma called Wyra, and uh, it was her um, and my relationship with her and my relationship with the community that kind of kept me coming back. Um, and yeah, as I said, I started off as a volunteer. Um, I have been through kind of various iterations of of uh, staff roles there and now I am uh, the chair of the UK charity that supports Intuariasi's work. It's called Friends of Intuariasi um, and we do 
uh, predominantly fundraising, um, but support the guys in Bolivia as much as we can in any way that we can. Okay, I have two questions following up to to that. And the first one, I guess, is, so you were a volunteer. Are the sanctuaries open to visitors in general or, or just volunteers? And why is that? Yeah, so it's just volunteers. Um, and uh, one of the kind of most important things about Intuariasi um, is that they aren't a zoo and these animals aren't for our um, entertainment. Um, so as a volunteer, you have to stay for a minimum of two weeks um, and a minimum of a month if you want to work with one of the big cats. Um, and yeah, that's a really, really important part of Siri's ethos um, is that you, it's, it's about trust and respect for these animals. Um, they don't ask for any kind of training, like previous training of working with animals. Um, and you receive a lot of training. Um, and that's obviously quite a high staff cost, um, to be training, uh, volunteers who are constantly coming through. Um, but that's, uh, really, really important. And it's about if you, if you don't have those minimum time commitments, then you aren't able to develop um, uh, any kind of relationship with these animals. And that's really important for them because they need to have as much stability um, with the people who are caring for them as possible. But then there is a cost in terms of uh, movement of people as well. Do you think two weeks is long enough for a position like that? Is that would you recommend that p- other people go and do this? Would I recommend that people go and do it? Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Um, <laughs> without yes, that was the heart of my question. Without question. Um, yeah. I mean, I can say 100% the experience of working with Comunidad Interesse changed the, the trajectory of my life. It changed who I was. It changed how I saw the world. It changed how I interacted with um with non-human animals and with human animals um yeah it changed who I was and that's not peculiar to me um uh, pretty much um most of the people that I've encountered over the years who have done the same thing and gone and volunteered with um into Ariasi whether that's for just for two weeks or whether it's for years that kind of the experience of working one-to-one with these animals um uh, is something that you can't you just can't put into words although I have tried. completely life-changing um and uh, as you, yeah as you say two weeks isn't enough but it is also um any help um that people can give is incredible particularly um during the pandemic we went from existing um uh, so our three sanctuaries um uh, would kind of routinely on a good day um, uh, have up to 40 volunteers um, um, at, each, at each sanctuary um, and then uh, overnight pretty much with the pandemic that number went down to zero and for the last two years pretty much a handful of staff members and some incredible volunteers who've stuck it out or who've come from within Bolivia but out, the manpower out there has been reduced so hugely and that has been such a huge drain on all um, the people out there who are working tooth and nail every day to keep those animals safe 
but also on the financial stability of the organization. So yeah, if if you're asking me whether I would recommend people go and, and do it, then I, yeah, I would without question. Um, because yeah, I guess what I think of sometimes is, is people traveling, you know, great distances to do a couple of weeks worth of volunteer work and, and how really important is that in terms of your carbon footprint? Uh, you know, what do you, is the value of what you're learning and what you're taking away, you know, offset the, the potential damage you're actually causing to the environment. And it sounds like for you, it does because of what people bring away can actually change everything that they interact with for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard question. It's one I've battled with. As I said, I go there every year or if I can. And that's definitely something that I have to weigh up in my head, whether it's worth it in terms of the flights. Um, and it's not something to take on lightly at all. In an ideal world, um, I think when I started off volunteering, um, how people traveled was very different. Um, and people were willing to, like I did, come for two weeks and then extend, extend, extend um, for months on end. And there wasn't that kind of sense of global instability um, and fear that there is now. Find as many volunteers within Bolivia as possible um, and really increasing our support within the Bolivian communities rather than encouraging people to, to fly halfway across the world um, in a kind of unstable and, and difficult and often scary world. But I think in terms of kind of making a judgment about whether that flight is worth it, I think that is, it has to be a personal choice and it has to be kind of balanced against whether you're, how much, flying you're doing in the rest of your time whether this is a kind of one-off trip that you'll savor for the rest of your life or whether it's yeah I I don't know I think it's it's valuable the experience of being there and seeing these anim animals um, and working with them is incredibly valuable um, for for the person doing it and for the community there um, and I think making that choice about um whether it's worth it for you and the planet, that has to be, per that's a personal choice. Before I started to travel and then after I traveled, you know, you, it really does change you no matter where you go. Mm -hmm. And I wish people would actually travel more. I think that it opens people up to new cultures and ideas they hadn't thought of before and compassion for people. It's mm -hmm. very hard for when you haven't traveled to understand what it is like for someone else to have grown up in a completely different culture in a completely different country. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And when people are actually able to travel, they actually see that for themselves and they, they, they don't just see it, they live it. And it creates a compassion in someone and an understanding of, you know, that there are actually other people with real lives and families that are living in a different way than you, but not differently than you. Yeah, it creates empathy, essentially. Mm. And and for these sanctuaries, I think it creates empathy for animals in a way that people who may not have even thought that they were, you know, animal people, particularly, and they go and do something like this, and it really changed their perspective on uh, other animals. 
in a way that again creates that compassion and empathy that they may not have had before and they can then extend that out to people that they know and and the work that they do so has siwi changed its your targeting of its educational campaign then based on what's gone on with the pandemic as you said they're they're focusing with their trying to find more volunteers in the country but they were always focused on educating young people yeah um so uh, what's happened over the years is that young people who um haven't um had uh, stable places to live stable family um stable families um have come and lived in the sanctuaries um and learn hands-on um how to handle wildlife um how to uh work in a sanctuary environment how to speak english um how to do the accounts, um, how to build a, a jaguar enclosure. Um, and some of those young people have gone on and they're now running some uh, the sanctuaries or the areas in the sanctuaries or in charge of our construction teams. Um, and that was always a really important kind of part of Siwi's work. Uh, over the years, we have also done wrong campaigns, educational campaigns across the country in schools, and that's been something that's been really successful. Um, but obviously, that's not something that has been done during the pandemic. Pretty much uh, all that's been able to be done is to for those few kind of staff members who are still there to just keep the sanctuaries open and keep the animals fed. That's, yeah and fight the fires of of every day um, uh, rather than sadly education is one of the things that often gets um, kind of dropped off the list but it all depends on fundraising as well and that's something our fundraising team is pretty focused on being able to run more education projects in the future particularly within Bolivia. So when I was first researching Siwi I came across a an article on Nana Baltazar. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Nana? Because I would have liked to talk to her, but uh, during my <laughs> discussions with your organization, uh, it, I came to realize she does not speak English and with no way of doing a really um, having, having a interpreter, uh, it didn't seem like that was going to work out very well. And so they, they forwarded me along to you, uh, which I'm very thankful for because during all of this, um, I then found out that you wrote a book that I have now been reading. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But yes, tell us a little about Nana as well. Uh, yeah, so Nana is one of the co-founders of Intuariati. Um, and she is the president of the organization. Um, she started off, um, uh, she was one of those original volunteers who were working with the young people in La Paz. Um, and she uh, rescued um a spider monkey. She was in her early, um, late teens, early twenties. She was in her first year studying biology at university. And she came across this spider monkey, um, who was a pet, um, in the city and she rescued her. And, uh, that monkey changed her life. And, uh, she tried to continue at university, tried to continue living at home with her mom. And uh, none of those things, were very feasible when you had a spider monkey that you needed to look after. Is this, 
Is this the same spider monkey it, as we talked originally? Yeah, it's a different spider monkey. So that that happened. They met that spider monkey. And then, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much time passed, but I think it was less than a year. And then Nana found this other spider monkey who she decided to rescue. Um, and it was her relationship with that monkey and some of her other friends who'd also um, rescued some other monkeys from similar situations in the city. And together they left La Paz and they traveled down to Cochabamba and uh, with the intention of looking for some land in the jungle where they could provide these monkeys with um, a home. And uh, that was kind of where Parque Machia, that first sanctuary for wild animals in Bolivia, came from. Um, and Nena has been... Uh, there ever since working with her spider monkeys um, uh, and all the other countless animals that seaweed rescues um, whether it's capture monkeys or birds or jaguars pumas and ocelots um, spectacle bears tapirs um, seaweed has rescued thousands of animals over the years and Nana has always been at the heart of that and um, I feel so privileged to have worked with her over the years and be able to say that she's my friend and she is one of the most inspiring uh, people I've ever met because she deals with so many disasters, so many uh, catastrophes um, every day. There are the fires that I mentioned, there's the flooding, there are new animals who turn up all the time who need homes and she's able to keep going every day. She's able to sort of address the challenges um, and yeah, wake up in the morning and with hope um, that the work that they're doing is essential. Thank you. I have now been reading your memoir called The Puma Years and my, the the next question I usually ask uh, guests is if there was a moment in your life that set you on the path to helping animals, you know, kind of one of those those uh, aha moments. And it, you know, from reading your book, I can say that there definitely was. But would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think for me, when I first arrived at the sanctuary and I signed up to stay for a month to work with uh, this puma, Wyra. She was three, about three and a half years old at that point. She turned up at the sanctuary when she was 10 months old. She had been uh, owned by a street performer. Um, so what most, what usually happens is that the um, their mothers, so Wyra's mother would have uh, most likely been shot by hunters and Wyra and any of her uh, siblings would have been taken and then sold on the black market most likely as pets. Uh, so Wyra ended up with this street performer um, in uh, one of the cities in Potosi and until she grew uh, too big um, and difficult to handle when she was, and at that point she was left with uh, seaweed. And uh, she uh, was always a very scared, anxious cat. She was desperate to be wild um, and she couldn't be. She just, she didn't have the skills to look after herself. So yeah, I signed up. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, as I said previously, I never worked with animals before. I wasn't really an animal person. And uh, I was living in this ramshackle camp um, uh, that was, uh, there was no hot water, no electricity. Um, it was in the middle of the jungle. 
there were tarantulas in the toilets and rats in the dorms and uh, I yeah I struggled (laughs) and uh, at the beginning I really um I just kind of wanted to go home and I didn't think that this was this was going to be for me but gradually um over the days um and then weeks and then after that months when I was going out every day all day every day working with this puma wire and one of the things that Intuariasi does is take the animals where they can out of their enclosures and take them for walks through the jungle. Uh, So Waira, as a puma, um, had her own trails um, through the jungle and we were able to take her out and walk with her through those trails so she she would have a life that was as close to what she would have in the wild as possible. She was able to chase monkeys and climb trees and run um, uh, obviously, she had um, uh, two people behind her, me, one of them, who was particularly clumsy and falling falling over and tripping over sticks and things like that. But she was always so patient, despite being very afraid. And it was very difficult for her to to trust the people who were looking after the people who were around her. She was also incredibly patient and over yeah over time I learned what it meant to trust her and what it felt like for her to start to trust me and that was uh yeah a relationship that developed over many years but there was definitely a time where I just thought yeah this is yeah I I want to I want to spend my life working with these animals or I'm working with her specifically for as long as I can. It sounds like she almost became a family member to you. Oh, she did. Yeah, she was my family and my best friend. I I rarely get to meet people who have walked a puma. I have myself. Have you? Yeah, I I haven't talked about it much on my podcast yet. I I worked at an animal sanctuary in Spokane, Washington um, for a little over a year. Uh, They would take in animals that people had used as, you know, had, had had as pets, but it was by no means a paradise. (laughs) It was a very different experience than you had, Mm. but an amazing experience that I would never, ever give up. Mm. Um, I, I had a couple Puma, uh, friends there, Charlie, who was, uh, just an asshole, just, (laughs) he, hated everyone. Mm-hmm. And he had, he had very good reason to hate everyone um, because of his start in life. And, and he just wasn't, he was going to blame everyone for his start in life and didn't want to give anybody anything back. But um, he and I had a, had an understanding. And so uh, I would often get called to, to help with him when he was giving everybody else a really hard time. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated Charlie a lot. And um and then we had uh, Tum Tum and Tatanka, who were brothers who would live in the same enclosure together and were just massive Northwestern mountain lions. And uh, they were they were just sweethearts. You know, you could you could go into their habitat enclosure and they would purr and you could scratch them and they they loved it. Um, yeah, so just so many different personalities. And and we would sometimes take out the the younger pumas for walks nothing like you. I didn't get to run through the jungle, Mm. but, um, 
it was an amazing experience and, and it's a really hard one to, to describe and share with people who've never done something like that before. So thank you very much for, for letting me share mm. it, it, you know, reading your book, just looking at the pictures that you have of Wyra in there, just, just made my heart just kind of all a, a flutter mm-hmm. again for, for big cats. And I've always been a big cat person. I always knew exactly what I wanted to do. And, and working with big cats was it since I was probably eight years old and saw born free for the first time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, so it, it was sort of a culmination for me, but at a very young age. And then I sort of realized the negative sides of zoos, uh, even ones that, that termed themselves sanctuaries um, mm. were often not as much of sanctuaries as they really put themselves out there to be. Mm. So when I find an organization that really is doing wonderful sanctuary work, it makes me very happy. Mm. I think the most important thing, and this is sort of very much at the heart of, of Siwi's ethos as well, is that animals, wild animals should not be behind bars. They shouldn't be in a cage. And uh, in an ideal world, organize, organizations like Siwi wouldn't have to exist. And uh, that's, I guess, what Siwi is fighting for, to not exist to live in a world where these animals can be free in the wild and they don't need humans to look after them. They don't need um, to have a, a clumsy English woman as their best friend. <laughs> they are happy in their own habitats with their own species. Um, and that is what, um, yeah, I think that's what Siwi is fighting for. And, it's that's I guess that's the that's the sci-fi future that um is yeah that that's what kind of gives you hope when you work in a sanctuary and you constantly see uh, new animals turning up who've been pets who've been beaten and abused um uh, and you see the jungle kind of coming down around you um uh, you have to have that vision of a of a different kind of future well, I would highly recommend your book to anyone. Uh, as I told you uh, before our interview started, I, I'm not usually a memoir reader, but I, I grabbed your book because I was going to be talking to you and I always like to you know, do a little bit of pre-research, um, but I have really enjoyed it. It has been such a great read so far. I, I honestly have a hard time putting it down. Um, I'm really glad. And again, maybe that's because of my background, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think that anybody would enjoy this book. It's it's a really excellent story. and. Um, so if there was a book you could gift to all the listeners besides your own, oh. what would that be? <laughs> I can't say my own. <laughs> I think that one's a given. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it would be a book by um, Adrian Marie Brown, um, who is an activist, um, a, a sci-fi writer, She's incredible, and I recommend anyone to uh, look her up. Um, the two books that she has written, which completely changed my life, are Emergent Strategy and Pleasure Activism. Um, yeah, both of which are about how to kind of forge those new positive futures together. 
Those sound really interesting. I'll have to definitely pick those up. Okay. So the big question at the end, what is the deal with animals? Yeah, I, I don't think there is one answer to this. Um, uh, for me, um, animals, humans and non-humans um, are each entirely unique um, with their own personalities and um, ways of being, uh, ways of being in the world. Um, and uh, I guess for me, kind of task in life is to um, find a, I guess, value the fact that there are so many different types of heartbeats in this world um, and uh, how to make sure um, everyone has the ability to live um, uh, in freedom and safety. Yeah. Laura Coleman, thank you for joining me on The Deal with Animals. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this show and have any questions or comments about this episode, go to www.thedealwithanimals.com. I'll always reply to your message, and I might even use it on the next show. And don't forget to follow and review us wherever you're listening to your podcast, as that will make us more visible to other listeners. Until next time, what do you think is the deal with animals? This podcast is part of the iRoar Animal Podcast Network.